0: Welcome to episode 401 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we're going to debut a new annual effort, a new idea, sort of a best of program. We're calling it some of the best bits and wits of 2020, And uh, we could have chosen so much stuff. It was difficult just to narrow it down, but we did. And uh, we'd like to thank everybody who was part of this year's set of episodes. Um, Strange year, but nonetheless, we had some good conversation. So here we go. Some of the best bits and widths of 2020 on troubadours and Rock On Tours. Hope you enjoy it.
1: a hole in my shoe he took one look in my face and said I can fix that hole in you I beg your pardon I'm not looking for a cure I've seen enough of my friends in the depths of the god-sick blues and you know that I'm alive You know that I'm a liar Nobody helps a liar, a liar. Cause I've been down to Cape town And dropped acid on my tongue Tripped upon the land till enough was enough. I was a little bit lighter, and adventure on my sleeve. I was a little drunk and looking for company. So I found myself a sweet. Softest hands. We were unlucky in love, but I'd do it all again. We built ourselves a fire. We built ourselves a fire. But you know. makes me tired. Tire. Let's build ourselves a fire. 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 Let's build ourselves.
0: Activist politician Sarah Cruz
2: Scranton is a 154 years old. The majority of people who have been in leadership at all levels have been have been men, have been white, have been heterosexual, um, and have been um, of, of usually of Eastern European or Western European descent. Um, I am. Um, uh, a woman. I am of, um, Latin American descent. I am uh, a lesbian. Um, um, I grew up, um, also like of, of like a low socioeconomic status. And so someone like me has never even come close to, to, you know, running for, uh, an elected position or even, or anything, or anything where where people look up to them for for advice or for um, direction as where to anything in the city should should go to. <clears throat>
0: yeah. yeah, I can see, I can yeah. see where you're coming from. Yeah. you know, you mm-hmm. you had to be a trailblazer, uh, <laughs> and uh, and I, I want to ask you. So, how, what is the significance, do you think, of being young? Female Latina lesbian as a citizen and as an elected official. Why is all of that together significant?
2: Well, I think each each one of those individual things has its own challenges. I mean, for so long, um, women have been marginalized, um, p- minorities have been marginalized, members of the LGBTQ community have been marginalized. Um, and so then all of the, and then people who have been, um, of, uh, of low income have been marginalized. So being all of those things in one person, it, it's, it's just, <laughs> it, it's, it's absolutely insane, um, to, to, to be a, uh, to be a person in the United States, especially now at this time in, in where we are as a country in 2020, um. Uh, I mean, and to and to to have to get up every morning, and to with the confidence and the uh, self assurance to to just exist as who you are, and to live and to and to survive, not just to survive, but then as an elected official to 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 be an example to others who may who may have one or more of those. Um, traits or or have a, or or in some way feel like they're also not good enough or they can't make a difference to be an example to say yes you can and especially within um, the the school district, I mean we have over ten thousand students we have um, close to twenty school buildings and the majority of those students now are of minority descent, um, number one his, hispanic um, and then close to 80% are also low, live below the poverty line. And that's why our school district is a title one school and we get free lunch. And so I think it was, I thought it was important that somebody who has that lived experience was on the board to, to bring that perspective to, to um, district uh, decisions.
0: Legendary American journalist and biographer, Patricia Bossworth.
3: It's my eighth book, and I, I think it's the most challenging book of my life. And I can I can tell you exactly what happened, how I came to decide to do it. I was uh, I was at a, um, a meeting with Brian Stevenson, who, uh, who really created the, the lynching museum uh, uh, down in in uh, in uh, Montgomery, Alabama three years ago, and he was talking about the importance of paying tribute to the 4,000 Afro-Americans who lost their lives, innocent ones, all of of them, um, for crimes mostly that they they never committed. Anyway, uh, I was listening to him talk, and I suddenly remembered that when I was very young, um, my father and Paul Robson worked together on an anti-lynching Campaign. It was they were trying to get an anti-lynching law passed in Congress. This is back in the forties, and I remembered it so vividly. I remembered Robeson coming to our house and talking, and uh, and of course he was a, a phenomenal character, a stupendous, kind of heroic, one of a kind characters. And he, uh, you know, the probably the most uh, outspoken advocate for racial equality in his time, and he was also at that point the most famous Afro-American in the world, along with Joe Lewis. I mean, He was he's comparable to Oprah in those days. He was that important and that effective and that influential. Anyway, I, um, I decided I was going to write about, about, about him and about my father and he fighting to end lynching, and also the fact that they both had bonded because they both were being, at that very moment, they were being surveyed by J. Edgar Hoover. It was um, They're both radical uh, and had been doing an awful lot of stuff Hoover didn't approve of. <laughs> and and he, was, he was out to get every, what he thought every communist. My father didn't happen to be a communist. Paul Robeson probably certainly believed in the Communist Party, although he was not a member of the party. Anyway, all these things kind of converged, and I began to research this book and that was, I guess I was researching for the last two and a half years. I now have a contract with Farrar Strauss to do it, and I'm just taking the five pivotal years of Robeson's life when he was triumphing in Othello on Broadway as an actor, opposite Uta Hagen and Jose Ferrer, and at the same time he was working to stop lynching to get a bill passed in congress which by the way was never passed and has never been passed to this day there have been 200 bills that have never passed because of the you know the, the the white supremacists in in congress and there are a lot of them anyway that began my this is what i'm doing right now and i'm totally and completely obsessed with with the book and was also with writing about hoover which of course Hoover is uh, Robeson's exact opposite. You know, it's like good guy, ba- bad guy in a way. Um, you know, uh, Robeson is black and, st- and straight and uh, uh, radical, and Hoover is gay and uh, arch-conservative and uh, the- a real villain. And they both look at justice in different ways. I mean, the whole thing is utterly fascinating, and it will be the most challenging book of my life.
0: It sounds utterly fascinating, isn't
3: it? It is, <laughs> it is. It is.
0: Now, your your dad's first name.
3: My dad. My dad's first name was Bartley or Bart Bartley Crum, and he was one of the lawyers for the Hollywood Ten. Uh, he he defed, he defended Ring Lardner and Waldo Salt and 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 uh, Dalton Trumbo and um, Bert Holbrecht in front of the first House on American Activities Committee. They were investigating whether or not these guys, all of them writers and or directors, had were communists. And they were accusing them of wanting to overthrow the government. I'm laughing, but it wasn't funny.
0: Poet, musician, expat, and our resident social critic, J.Q.
4: Here's something for you. Uh, I read something once that really changed uh, my outlook on things. And it was by an Indian philosopher... Funnily enough, a, a guy named uh, Sri Aurobindo, who was a Bengali and uh, a poet and a spiritualist and all of those things and a, a guru at one point, uh, for, well, for most of his life. But before that, he was a political revolutionary and a freedom fighter in India. You know, uh, he's very well known in India because if not for Sri Aurobindo, you would have never gotten to Gandhi. He was the guy who was sort of the, uh, uh, the revolutionary, independent independence-minded scourge of the British Empire for for quite a few years. He said that the nature of suffering is that it is temporary. There is no such thing as permanent suffering. That the greatest uh, metaphysical error ever made was the monotheistic vision of hell, a place of eternal suffering. Suffering is based on temporality you need time to suffer uh, what is eternal cannot suffer in other words it's limitation okay so if you think of it this way the reason you suffer psychologically is because you are trapped in your own mind if you could expand outside of your mind you would suffer less right this is why we why the the spiritualists speak of expanding consciousness. You go beyond suffering when you get outside of what our consciousness, which is basically mentality, okay, binary thinking. Uh, You suffer physically because you are trapped in your own body. If you could feel every cell on earth, you would actually suffer less because the overwhelming majority of living cells on earth are not in a state of suffering. Suffering is always a state of limitation, whether it be in time or physically. Consciousness is eternality. It is eternity. In other words, awareness can only grow. Suffering is what shrinks you, that there's a sort of yin-yang to that. You follow me? Totally. All right. Well, that's sort of the answer to what you were saying about... Well, what people are afraid of is not death, for instance, which is just sleep. What they're afraid of is pain, suffering. Well, let,
0: let's, put, go let, ahead. Let, let's put it into a pragmatic uh, framework. Let's say someone's a, uh, really afraid of losing their job because they can't then pay their bills and support their family anymore. How, how is that going to be? Uh, transcended through this sort of philosophy, that fear, that pragmatic—it's
4: not. It's not. You're going to suffer, but you're going to suffer temporarily. Is is the idea? It. I don't think that can help you. I don't think. I don't think anything I say or any philosophical idea. You know, it's like Tom Waite says: "Misery is the river of the world. Nothing has ever prevented suffering." We have notions, and we've been talking about some of them, that life is bigger than this life, that there is something after, something beyond, that what we experience here is a, is a form of illusion or gain. You know, and that's a very ancient idea. Uh, we were speaking of India. In ancient India, there's two notions of physical reality, Maya, which is that reality is an illusion, and Lila, L-I-L-A, a Sanskrit term, which means that reality is a game like a video game so that you're basically a character and if you've ever played a video game and been in a character you're very intensely involved and at the moment up until the moment where your character say gets killed then you put the joystick down and you're in a greater consciousness than you were in when you were involved in the game where you narrowed yourself to be that character if you see what i mean and so the the basic idea is that the life you're living is something like that
0: J- your identity. J.Q. here on Chuba and Rock on <laughs> Tours. Uh, so, you know, do you believe that after your physical self and your consciousness in the form that it is now ends as the way we know it now? Uh, and do you hope as well, believe and hope that you're going to go, there's going to be a, another life for you?
4: Oh, Obviously, I'm human. I hope that, that, that I expand out of this consciousness into a greater consciousness where everything is more peaceful and loving and, and empathy is not a question of understanding what somebody else is going through by comparing it to your own experience, but by experiencing that other consciousness directly and being beyond the ego and selfhood and all of those things. Yeah, and you're in a realm of light and blah, blah, blah. Of course, I hope that. Of course. What idiot doesn't hope that, right? (laughs) But do I believe it? I don't know. I don't know. Here's the thing. Uh, Read your Kierkegaard, one of my favorite thinkers of all time. Faith is the opposite of knowledge. If you know something, you can't have faith in it. Faith is not knowing. So all religion, all spirituality, all these New Age things, or Christianity, Islam, what have you, uh, Hinduism, whatever, it's all faith it's all based on not knowing but then again as a human being half your experience is objective because you have to deal with the objective world and the other half is subjective and i'm sorry to all the philosophical materialists out there but occam's razor and the scientific method do not apply to subjective reality and that is half of the experience of every human being the subjective realm, that's where mysticism and poetry and the arts and religion come into play. Subjective science. And it's tricky and it's paradoxical, but that's the way it is. Voila.
0: J.Q., I think that's a good place to pause our conversation, our never-ending conversation here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
4: Um, yeah, but my friend, you got to admit, that's the weirdest one we've had. <laughs> I,
0: I loved it. I think it was wonderful. I'd like to take a special moment to thank our regular contributors, Almighty Todd, Michael Harris, Little Star Run, and Dwayne Heisler, for all that you do on Troubadours and Rock On Tours every year. The insight, the kindness, the humor, the intelligence, and the wonderful humanity you help infuse into our program. So greatly appreciated. And I look forward to talking with you again in 2021. Thank you. Acclaimed New York City visual artist and memoirist, Peter McGough.
5: You know, like anybody, there's the good parts and bad parts. He just wants money all the time.
0: <laughs> it just a t- Who does Who Yeah, doesn't? Exactly. <laughs> Now, it's great talking to talking with you, Peter. It really is, Peter McGuff here on the on the program, Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Um, I, I'd like to ask you a question, given your experience uh, with with art. Uh, how do you how, how does one know when they are experiencing beauty?
5: Well, beauty. I mean, you look at a sunset. You're experiencing beauty. You're experiencing the greatest art, nature. I mean, I think any person can look at a sunset, even if they're in the worst mood ever. It can either snap them out of it or they pause for a moment in the rage. And, uh, you know, beautiful forests or vistas or... The Alps, staring at the Alps. I remember once I first saw the Alps in Switzerland. Uh, we were invited by this art dealer, Bruno Bischofberger, to stay with them over Christmas, and you know, you just—I looked at it and it hurt my eyes. I mean, of course, it was a bright day on those white slopes, but it was just so—it looked like a postcard. I couldn't even wrap my head around it. It was so beautiful, and I think that when you're looking you know so nature's complete beauty you know it's even a twisted tree you know or a little twisted bonsai tree or or the, or the uh, a waterfall or whatever or the rocky mountains you know i think that people can really melt into it and art is very much uh it's either personal or it's a market or someone saying this is really great. You know, there's some people that look at art and they can really understand it. And some people, I think, they look at a price tag. Am I going to flip it? Or some people look at it and think, is this going to go in my house with my furniture? You know, and it's not about the art for the room. It's the room for the art. You know, in my my book, I think. Not my book, book, but you know my way of thinking is that art. You know when you read about it, you know art's about the enemy, art's about anti-social, art's radical. Art is all these things like being a murderer or this or that. And I think that people can look at different kind of art and you know, like when you go to the museum and they say my kid could do that. Well, your kid didn't do it. <laughs> and you know, there's this artist, Bryce Martin, who does these. Minimalist paintings, like, a plain colors next to each other, and people are like, well, I don't know what this means. It's like, well, did you ever meditate? That's what it's like. It's this void and it's beauty at the same time. It's this space that you can connect with, instead of something that is, you know, going round and round and round in your head. You know, so I think that. Beauty, I was told by this printer of photography who said, what I like about your work, and it's a bad word in the art world, is you're about beauty. And I actually made a painting that said beauty matters. And, you know, before all the this matters and that matters, but I wasn't trying to play off on that. Other people's, uh, you know, like Black Lives Matter, which I think is very important. And, and uh, you know, so art is about the sublime art is about something that's indescribable. You know, I think Pasolini said if it makes sense it's not working <laughs> you know, the film director. You have to I think that art is can reach, you know, the highest ethereal voices of unconsciousness. You know, it can it can move you to great heights. It can it can change your point of view. And I think that uh that, for me is what art's about. You know, I look, at, I go around and I look at the galleries and I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's the current thing. Oh, that's what the young people are doing. Oh, they're really talented draftsmen. Wow, that's really great. Or, or oh, wow, it's so big. And then sometimes it's like I'm immersed in their vision and I'm, I'm just stunned by it, stunned by how it moves me. And that's what art, music, Books, painting sculpture you know the art that's why it's so beautiful
0: fiddler educator chicken coop builder and our resident historian surf william
6: yes that yeah yes yeah. yes uh, as of last week right cuz now we are what's today march uh, march f- March 15th, Fourteenth. March 14th, Fourteenth Today's March, talking. today's, today's March 14th. As recently as last week, it's a democratic hoax. That's the president of the United States, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what's the difference between that and, uh, the, the plague, the black death is spread by witches or cats or people who are not pious enough. Um, What's the, there is, you know, we are in the modern age, the age of science, the age of discovery, and you've got a president who sounds like a religious leader in Florence in the mid middle 1300s, basically. Yeah. Good. good so
0: this is the historical perspective and comparison I'm looking for.
6: Well, I, I I stumbled into it as usual. Um, the. the what we have now that they didn't have in Florence in the 1300s is science. We have we have science. We actually have people who specialize in studying exactly the problems we're facing right now, using the scientific method, uh, uh, forming a hypothesis, experimenting to determine if your hypothesis is is valid. Um, discussing and debating with other learned learned people about what they're finding and how your results in various experiments compare. That's science we've 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 had science now for over two thousand years. It really hit its stride in the age of enlightenment and the age of reason. Uh, that's when you saw a lot of superstition and a lot of religious beliefs sort of wane because people were able to, well, they were able to read, um, they were able to come to some logical conclusions based on evidence, based on what they were witnessing. And we saw great, great strides in the areas of, of health care. And um, we have a president right now in the modern age talking about democratic hoaxes, or saying things like, um, no, I'm not going to get tested because I feel fine. Um, so if you want to talk about the history of pandemic... One of the things that you have to talk about simultaneously is people's reactions to those pandemics. And of course, people freak out because you're watching those around you die. And in some cases, die rapidly and in great numbers. And you have no explanation for it whatsoever, none. So you start basically grasping for anything you can that's going to bring some reason into an otherwise insane world. And, And as a result of that, You have people doing things that actually spread the disease even more rapidly. Um, You also have a large group of people who just gave up hope. Um, So the history of pandemic is a history of us not knowing how to deal with these biological phenomena. And today, thank, good- thank goodness, although we're not immune from these things, we have so many more weapons to fight these things because we have science and technology on our side. Right? And, to, and to behave as if a layperson understands how these things work and to discard the information coming from scientists and healthcare professionals, to me, is almost criminal.
0: Resident punk and one of the co-authors of the highly acclaimed book The Uncensored Oral History of Punk, Legs McNeil.
7: We were driving. John said he wanted to start a magazine about comics and rock and roll. And um, he said, uh, I want to call it Teenage News. And I said, that's a stupid name. Why don't we call it punk? And... um, they all started laughing, and they thought that was a great idea. And John said, I'll be the editor, and Jed said, I'll be the publisher. And they looked at me, and they said, what are you going to do? And John said, oh, you can be the resident punk. Ha ha. You know, he was hysterically laughing. So that's kind of how it started. And but I... we had not seen the remote. We didn't even know CBG. I think John knew that CBGBs existed, but I, I certainly didn't. And I, I also didn't read rock and roll magazines, you know. I, I couldn't afford them. like
0: like cream for example that you mentioned yeah
7: john read them john john read all the rock mags
0: well you know the term punk how did you come up with that i mean some people say it
7: it wasn't it wasn't that hard it was you know what everybody had called me all my life you know you are you're a punk you know (laughs) you know and also they used it on tell you know all the crime shows you know, when they finally caught the bad guy in the end, they couldn't say, you motherfucker."
0: FCC legs. FCC legs.
7: Oh, or whatever they said, you know. They said, you know, you're a punk. You're a dirty punk, you know.
0: <laughs> I got it, yeah. Playwright, poet, activist, baker, and candlestick maker, Kitty Bell Burbank.
8: Okay. Um, you know, I'm kind of an introvert, so <laughs> it's different for me, you know, and, and I've never had the, the kind of budget where I was going out to eat every night, um, going to lots of expensive things and going on vacations to faraway places. So, so none of that is affecting me, you know, um, so I'm lucky for not being privileged <laughs> <laughs> <You're> not <spoiled. laughs> on, that, on that level but um you know I think at first we saw just people sharing people like sharing whatever resources they had and we saw that a lot as teachers everyone was kind of like this is what I got what are you doing and and that's continuing now as we go into the fall a lot of people just kind of talking about what is your strategy and what are what are you know? Oh, here, let me share this thing that I have with you that I think is going to work, you know, that that can help you out. So a lot of sharing and a lot of free theater online um, that I never would have had a chance to go see before. All the national theater live shows from London, they're they're going up one at a time. I saw uh, a Lauren Gunderson play. I saw another public theater production that uh, was actually written for Zoom, so that was really interesting. I got to see a reading of one of my grad school professor plays, and I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to leave my house. I got to do a theater of war workshop that was actually something to do with Greece and there were like all these famous actors like on my computer screen it was so cool I'm like oh look there's Francis McDormand you know <laughs> Are you and you
0: participated in this program with, the, with
8: yeah the... I mean I could have asked them a question if I wanted to I just listened but um, That's cool. I got to take a workshop the other day with a, a New York neo-futurist member we did like a I wrote poetry with strangers from all over the world um, and it was free like I didn't have to pay anything for that and I didn't have all those opportunities, you know, in January.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, um, it, if it, you know, our, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, if it weren't for these online uh, mm-hmm. offerings of free theater, I think he would have offed himself by now. I really do. <laughs> because it's such a large part of how he exists, how he gets through. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, 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 you're right. This, this has been so, sort of a um, almost... Uh, a a way of of staying connected to the larger world and and soothing, uh, nurturing your mind and your soul through the arts. It's so important. And if you can't do it in person, then I guess you got to do it this way. New York City-based director, writer, cabaret critic, and activist, Jerry Geddes.
9: I met I mentioned last time an artist that I worked with for a number of years named Robert W. Richards, Mm -hmm. who who has a had a a kind of remarkable life of being a companion, along with being a wonderful artist and in uh, in both uh, in both fashion and in pop culture by being a companion at certain points of Dinah Washington and of Peggy Lee. And through them, he became very good friends with Sarah. And then I became very good friends with Robert. He was, I think I mentioned the last time, he was kind of my Uncle Maine. Mm -hmm. He showed me New York when I was young and just out of Columbia. So I was 20, 21. And uh, so I had seen Sarah a number of times. But he said, we'll come and we'll hang out with her after. She was playing at the Maisonette, which was a wonderful club in the city in the days of nightclubs. And so we went and then sarah invited us i met her and i was tongue tied in the back of the (laughs) the club just saying how wonderful i thought she was and and she being very gracious but at the same time very shy and kind of giggled and said well thank you very much And and then she invited us up to her suite in the in the hotel where the Maisonette was and so it turned out it was just the band the trio which was uh carl schroeder who was a great pianist too, I only know from Sarah, but played with many other people, uh, a bass player, Andy Simpkins, and then a, a drummer, Walter Booker. And they had uh, dates with them. And then it was Robert, Sarah, and me, and we were all kind of sitting on the floor in the living room, just having wine and talking. And at one point there was a lull in the conversation and Sarah leaned, it was Sarah, then Robert, then me in the circle. And he, she leaned over and whispered in Robert's ear and he laughed and said, oh sure. So she got up and left, and I leaned over and said, she was looking at me when she talked to you. What was she saying? Did she want me to leave? Am I too? What's going on? <laughs> and so he said, no, 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 no. She just asked if you were old enough that she could bring out the marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> and you, were, and about, you point, were 20. You were around 20. Yeah yeah, 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 And at that point, she appeared in the doorway with a little baggie in her hand and said, I hear we're all vipers in the room, so let's have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent so we got stoned and talked about music and it was an amazing evening and so every time she would come to new york after that we would hang out uh we would go to the blue note and she would rent a, a limo and we would sit in the back of the limo and we would stop by at gray's papaya on uh saint mark's place or 8th street and 6th avenue and get hot dogs and she'd have bottles of champagne in the back of the car so we'd have hot dogs and champagne and we would drive to a place like there was a uh, famous disco called the limelight that was actually a deconsecrated church that had turned into this big trendy gothic kind of disco and so she never would go in because it was a deconcentrated church and she thought she shouldn't go into it Mm. but we would sit outside in the limo and watch the people go in and she'd be fascinated by the costuming and the 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 energy of all these people going into the club, and we'd just sit there and talk and have hot dogs in the back of the limo, watching people go in.
0: <laughs> she sounds fun.
9: Yeah, uh, one of my favorite times we she was playing at the at uh, Blues Alley in Washington, and uh, Robert and I went down for the weekend to stay with her at her the apartment where they had put her up for the weekend, and uh, she made a mean chili. So after the show, she uh, made us dinner, and then. Sarah traveled with a sewing machine and her relaxation was sewing so Robert and I would sit on the couch and have champagne and talk about music with her but all the while she was at the sewing machine sewing away huh. <laughs> just keeping her other parts of her life up up going so. and she would give me hints of like saying she would call me and say you know I'm singing the national anthem at the Mets game tomorrow in case you wanted to listen to it or tape it or do something like that and, uh, and she would let me know when she was appearing on an album that wasn't in her own name, so I could keep track of those kinds of things. And uh, we, we were friendly and friends, and uh, she was a wonderful person, very shy, uh, offstage.
0: Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Martina Mayo. The experience you had when you were a kid watching your mom try to try to make it, um, quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, did it and does it still inspire you to kind of make to, to make it, quote unquote? And do you think yet you, you you have?
10: I think that there like a part of my DNA tell ha, is that you are never safe. <laughs> like there's there's some um, I like. I joke with my husband who grew up similarly, although he grew up in a rural, like, in in, in the rural version of, of that, um, that, like, we have, like, poor kid mentality and, like, poor kid DNA, um, which is also, you know, for some people, like, immigrant DNA of, like, there is nothing guaranteed for you. <laughs> you have no safety net. And so uh, you better make it work because there's no guarantee that you're going to get helped by your government, by the country that you're in, you know, um, your family m- might love you, but they might not necessarily be able to support you financially and other, other ways beyond love. And, um, and so, you know, I don't, if I asked my mom if she felt like she made it, I'm curious what she'd say. Um, because I think that's also like the term making it is, Relative also um, some people think making it is like you have a home maybe a roof over your head um, You have healthy kids and like that's a version of making it some people think making it is like having leaving a legacy of work or um, writing, you know in my case or whatever, but um, so yeah, I, I I'm, That's I mean, that's also related to the pandemic too. I think of I think people a lot of people are reevaluating how they've found meaning um in their lives and and what what they define as making it uh particularly when like uh, so many things are vulnerable and and uh and moving and and, and the ways that they have found meaning are, necess- are not also not guaranteed at this uh, you know moving forward so yeah i don't i she my mom inspires me all the time she's she's i, I still like find her in my writing and and she's my she's my like best friend in the world i love her so much um but i think like that's our that's part of our uh, like our shared like my inheritance from my mom is like <laughs> take care of yourself <laughs> there's no guarantee
0: <laughs> yeah i i hear you sociologist historian activist Founder and CEO of the Black Scranton Project, Glennis Johns.
11: Um, To an extent, I think, again, I think black lives matter always, and like always, black lives will always matter. And I think it, that's important to like, Hallelujah. continue to, yes, remind people. Yes. and I also think, um, yeah, I just felt like people were coming to to black Scranton and being like, what, what are you doing? What are you protesting? And like, behind the scenes, I'm sitting here talking to the mayor, talking to police chief Graziano, talking to the school board, because I want to now see the city you know, have our backs. I want to make sure the schools aren't overlooking Black children and continuing the school-to-prison pipeline. I want to make sure Chief Graziano and his staff of police officers in Scranton City are not unjustly targeting Black people. And I wanna know them and I wanna hear them say that. And I wanna see it in writing and I wanna see it in legislation. So while everyone is out in the streets protesting, Black Scranton is actually doing, like, you know, doing the legislative work, trying to make sure we have receipts for the action that people are in the streets for. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And so again, Protests are very needed, but like we're protesting so that we all know the things that we want. So it's like, hey, we need to defund the police. So meanwhile, Black Branton is like, let me see what the police budget is. Okay. And so I'm trying to see how we're spending our money. So that way because I see why is why is the police budget up four million more dollars in their ammunition budget. But the school district still has a deficit of 12 million. You know what I'm saying? These are the questions we should be asking. And so when I was saying, like, there's other ways to protest, you could do protesting by doing research, asking questions, calling your, your local legislators, knowing who your your city council members are, because representation is important. And if you don't even know who represents you, but you want to be in the street and standing in front of City Hall, but you don't know the people who work in there, mm-hmm. that's a problem right there. And so I wanted to make sure my city knew that. Because, again, we can't have action, we can't, like, no one is going to take us seriously, like I said, if you don't even know who all five members of your city council are, but you're you're out there, you know? So it's like, I wanted to remind my community that, like, hey, these are important, so while you're mad at me and Black Scranton for not organizing a protest we want to see the, what the we want to see what, what laws are on the books. And so like what that's why i say like there's all different types of action. Like we need people that want to do the investigative research, want to look at the budgets. We need the people that will be in the streets and remind them that we're still about the action. We need people um, yeah, like calling the school departments, calling the, the 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 school district and seeing what's up, making sure that okay, you know because of covid All the kids are getting um, Chromebooks now to do their work online, but do all the kids have access to internet and which kids don't and most of the time it's the students of color so that's a lot that's not the work that needs to be done for black lives matter and i think in NEPA specifically like i was saying i noticed there was a lot of white people a lot of white allies that were desperate to get involved in a protest so that way they can just you know check off their check off on their list of i am not racist that i participated in a protest and then they can go about their days and act like everything's totally fine and normal no it's not like it's really not so yeah, I just um, I just want to make sure that people remember that it's it's more than the protest. When you go home and you you know you untie your sneakers and take off your mask, it's more to it. You know, there's still people every single day. The police are still driving up and down the black neighborhoods still to this day. The police are are still like targeting black people still, and it's like we need to rem- we need to like stand up for that, and we need to continue to make sure that sh- that changes.
0: Brooklyn-based comedian and comedic writer, Nash Rose.
12: Yeah, I mean, I feel like every other black person and non-black person at this point about it is just, it's exhausting. Um, It's not surprising. Um, I don't know if I'm being a pessimist, but I didn't actually expect them to give her justice. You're talking about Brianna? Yeah, Brianna Taylor. Um, I was hopeful that they would give her justice, um, but I didn't expect it to actually happen. So I feel like because of that, I'm not as far in the deep end emotionally as a lot of my friends and friend of friends are. But the whole situation, you know, I don't know. It's just exhausting. I guess (laughs) it pays to be...
0: It pays to be a skeptic then, I guess. You're not so disappointed when when things occur that uh, are unjust. But I guess you don't want to become cynical, right? Yeah. Now.
12: Yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know how to describe it. It's just something that is normal in my world. So you hope for a change, and if a change happens, that's when you're happy. That's how I see it.
0: Yeah. So lower your expectations, so you're not so devastated and disappointed about, uh, you know, your country, basically. Which
12: yeah, I think that's what I that's what I personally did. Now I know everyone isn't like that. Like my sister isn't, my brother isn't, my friends. A lot of my friends aren't there. They go into every single situation. With high expectations and hopeful, but I think you know, and I just, I just realized right in this moment, I think I legitimately traumatized by it because I remember how devastating Trayvon Martin's case was for me, and that was the last time I got emotionally, I allowed myself to get so emotionally invested in these these um, style murders,
0: and that was years ago.
12: Yeah, that one hurt too much. That one, and, and then Eric Garner, so close, and I was just like, those are the two that I was just like, you know what, I can't, I can't, pay, I can't pay attention to this with all of my heart anymore. It just, it just hurts to the core.
0: Award-winning British music journalist and editor Alan Jones. And after everybody had uh,
13: left, we stayed at the table and he ordered a bottle of brandy and he basically had nothing to do uh, until that night's show. Uh, so I had it my, to myself really for about three or four hours, uh, and although I didn't have a tape recorder with me and I, I didn't want to turn what was uh, actually just a, a conversation in, into uh, a, co- a formal interview because I thought he might become a bit more guarded. Um, But it was great, just a wealth of stories about Andy Warhol, the factory, uh, touring with the original Velvet Underground. I mean, it was,
0: you know, it was just a fantastic experience. Artist, actor, pacifist and puppet maker, John Bromberg.
13: You know, I forget about things as soon as I do them, but then Trudy shows me something, and, uh, you know, I want to go back and develop that a little further. So I'm stuck in this rut, you know, of going back and forth. <laughs> uh,
0: you know you're... you know how it is, right, uh, Yeah, I do. It, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> and, you, know... you, you document everything. I document a lot of things and I have a great yeah. woman in my life too who for some yeah, un- un- yeah. unknown reason cool. loves me and, and you know respects and appreciates <laughs> me even though I'm a a selfish loon. Uh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah.
13: But uh wow. Wow. It's amazing for you to admit all of this.
0: I love you man. I do. <laughs> <laughs> all right, boy, Larry. This
13: has been this has been so so. This pandemic hasn't affected me personally at all because I'm I'm by nature a solitary. Yeah, you see. So uh, uh, I only go out to perform, and that's the only thing that's actually taken away from me. And uh, actually, you you know, I hole up in the winter. I I I actually. Uh, go to sleep um, during the day in the winter so that I'm not distracted by anything. That's, that's when I concentrate on paintings.
0: Native and African American vocalist, songwriter, composer, and educator Martha Redbone
8: And the resilience. That's the celebration is the resilience. And, um, you know, those are those are words that um, people have said to me. So I you know, and I like that word, you know, it's the resilience. It's like, um, you know, Maya Angelou's poem, and still we rise and still I rise. And I and this, those are such profound words and still I
11: rise and still I rise.
0: spinning star reflecting colored light on a snowy night by the fire. The next morning, homemade cinnabuns and dark roast coffee in a cup my daughter gave me as a gift that says, Number One Dad, tell me, what else needs to be had? And there you have it, episode 401 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. Some of the best bits and wits of 2020 on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I'd like to thank again all of the wonderful folks that were on this year's set of episodes. Truly privileged to be able to talk with you and to work with you. In particular for this episode, I'd like to thank, of course, and for the whole year, my associate producer, who I could not do this without, Dr. Michael Pavese, and our guests on 401, Sarah Cruz, Patricia Bosworth, J.Q., Peter McGough, Surf William, Legs McNeil, Kitty Bell Burbank, Jerry Geddes, Martina Mayok, Gunness Johns, Nash Rose, Alan Jones, John Bromberg, and Martha Redbone, as well as these musical artists Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Stretch, and Bobito with the M19s band, Jenny Lewis. Aarons Blanchard and Branford Marsalis, too. And, of course, as always, from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's do our best with this time. Take care.